welcome. I want to say welcome, greetings to everyone. Uh, if it's your first time or first couple of times here, uh, we've been, uh, we're, we're drawing to a conclusion in the book of 1 Peter. It's kind of interesting if you flip just really quick to the third chapter. Uh, that's not right. I was thinking somewhere here. Oh yeah, third chapter. Uh, in the middle of 1 Peter, third chapter, verse 8, Peter says, finally, in other words, he's drawing to a conclusion in chapter 3, but he still has two more chapters to go. Um, I like that idea uh, in a way, because, and I can relate with Peter, because there's many times where like, I've come back up to pray after the last worship song, and I've really had a few more things to say, and I'm kind of like, pull a full Peter on him and just like go again for two more chapters. Um, but we actually are drawing to a conclusion because we're in chapter 5. Um, today's message, I was telling um, one of the deacons this morning, I feel like I've been preparing for 20 years for this message. I really do. This is how passionate, this is like one of my uh, areas, it's, it's really in my wheelhouse. It's really uh, important to me. I believe it's important to the church. Uh, it's something I've been passionate for and, and been uh, promoting for a long time, even before we were uh, attending church here. It's something that once we were here and here for a year or so, uh, there was a group of us guys that got together to take a second look at what the Word says about church leadership, take a second look and try to, at, in those days, this is a long time ago, but there was just a lot of drama there shouldn't be that much drama. And, uh, there, and the church had gone through some real difficult days and, and was going through a difficult time. And uh, what does God's word say in regard to that? And uh, so that was an opportunity for me um, to really uh, come in alongside of these fellows. We worked together. And, and the, uh, the result of what happened then is really what you see going on now. We have a, a, a pluralistic leadership in our church. If you don't know that already, I'm just letting you know ahead of time. There's four of us elders. There's myself, there's Tim Weeby, there's Dave Wantlin in the foyer, and Les Whitakin in the back row right here. And we lead the church pluralistically. Uh, it, it's not about who stands up here and preaches, and that's the direction we go. It's about leading it pluralistically. Not only, not only is there just us four, but there's a host of deacons. Josh Allwine is our head deacon. Um, Bill Shook, Jonathan Allwine, um, Tim Gower, and Jim Kiefer uh, right here, the guy with the boot on. I don't know if that represents the fact that your toes get stepped on more than anybody else's. No, I don't think so. He's just healing up for an injury. But uh, we lead... The collective board here, the elders and the deacons, we lead collectively together. The, el the, el the elders are responsible and really um, lead the charge in the spiritual direction of the church, what's taught, what's preached about. Uh, but it's not that we're closed-minded or closed ears to the deacons. Uh, we meet once a month, and we meet collectively, and we talk about what's going on in the life of the church talk about uh, upcoming events, we talk about finances, then we split off. The deacons primarily are in charge of the finances across the board. I don't make a financial decision for this church, really. Not that I don't have influence there, uh, or the other elders as well. But that's really up to the deacons. What's awesome about this whole 
setup is, and, and this is what I prayed about, even from those early, early days, is that the deacons wouldn't just settle in to just make sure the lights are on, the bills are paid, you know, that, that the place is clean and well taken care of, and that's it. But really that their hearts would be turned towards the spiritual leadership as well of the fellowship. And so collectively together, it's kind of one big voice. That's the view. That's the message. That's the 20-year preparation and just a, a summary statement. Uh, but a lot of people are left asking the question uh, or a variety of questions, you know, in regard to church leadership. Like, it looks different here. Uh, when, when we first switched over, we had people ask, so who's the senior pastor? I said, well, Jesus is our senior pastor and the rest of us are elders. So you're Mormon? No, no, let's, <laughs> that's not it. But that's, that's culturally what we think of. When you say elders are leading the church, you think, I think of, a lot of people think of uh, a, different, a different church. Um, so how does it work? i just give you a quick, a quick rundown. I was thinking as I was drumming coming prior to this is that I've served on a variety of church boards with a variety of different pastors in a kind of a senior pastor model, which is what this church, and let's face it, almost every other church operates in that capacity. There is, though, there is a wide-swept move into true pluralistic leadership. And I hear about it, I read about it, I pick it up bits and pieces. It's just throughout the country that more and more churches are going to um, kind of a, a truly shared style of leadership. But how does it work? How does it function? Um, in, in regard to serving with other pastors, I can say unequivocally that all of those guys burn out. All of those guys came to a fork in the road. A, they came to a pivotal moment in their ministry where they were just, uh, they were done. They were wore out. I wouldn't say that they walked away from their faith. That's not it. But the burden that was on them, that they felt on their shoulders, that wasn't being shared plurally, became to be too much. It was too heavy. Or there was unresolved conflict. Uh, there was problems. There was temptations. There was distractions. There was all these different things that, that they felt, this is my view of working with them, Awesome men of the Lord, I'm not saying anything about their character or their ministry so much, is that they took on all of that burden upon themselves in a solo manner, in a solo way. And it really burned them out. Um, so how could it be better? That was really the question we came to years ago. Like, how can, we, how can we take a second look, and several of us that are in this room were part of that, how can we take a second look and make it better? How can we make it more effective, uh, more God-honoring? I tell people this, and I've shared this many times, our goal back then was to minimize, minimize the requirements of the state and maximize what the Bible says. Minimize the requirements of Washington State and being a, a you know, non-profit, uh, incorporated non-profit, 501c3, and to maximize, to maximize in our leadership in an everyday way what the Bible says. And so that's kind of how can we make it more effective. That's really, um, really was the, 
the outcome of it. Um, the last question you may ask, and I'm hoping that you're asking this, is what's my part in all this? Fellas, what's your part in all of this? How, how, how do I interact if I am or am not in leadership? How do I, uh, am I challenged by God to continue to grow in my faith if I'm a new believer, if I'm, if I'm a mature believer? Am I listening to the Holy Spirit Is it when he says, hey, you might, uh, you might consider the fact that uh, they need some help. In fact, a friend of mine said that in the, the church that he grew up in, over on the west side, annually, annually, there was a challenge to the men to put to prayer and to fasting for a two-week period as to what their connection to the church is, what their ministry to the church is, what their role in leadership, and should they step forward and, and serve in a more tangible way, should they, you know, really just consider it. I think that that's actually a phenomenal idea, and I don't think it's one that should be limited perhaps to just a two-week period once a year. But for 20 years, these types of questions have been in the front of my mind and uh, kind of have kind of hovered over uh, my aspect in ministry as a church leader and as an elder. Um, the other thing I think that has, has uh, prepared me in regard to 1 Peter chapter 5, and let me tell you, I've used bits and pieces out of 1 Peter 5, but I've never preached the whole thing in one message. So you're, you're going to get this cannon load <laughs> of 20 years of my life. But there's things that have also prepared me, I think, for this. And one is, and probably the most important thing is, is I was raised by somebody who loves animals. My dad loved animals. In fact, he should have been a vet or he should have been an egg shop teacher uh, and then farmed a little on the side in my looking back view. Uh, he loved animals and he was great. We raised Holstein heifers, replacement heifers for dairies uh, up until the, until the time where he had his first stroke. But uh, he was far and above one of the best people that I've ever been around. And I know a few... A uh, good friend of mine, Nathan uh, Carlson, has the same kind of a gifted ability when it comes to animals. Uh, they know, they know their herd. They know their herd. They know all the propensities of the herd. They know their temperament. They know the genetic makeup. Uh, Nathan and Bill Carlson, Carlson Dairy, people that I sell my feed to, live up in Summit Valley, they have... 500 head probably at least, maybe closer to 600 head of animals on their property. And they know every single one. In fact, the milk cows that come through the milk parlor, they come in and their ear tags are on the wall side and everybody's working over on this side. And Nathan and Bill can just look at those cows and tell you what number she is, how much milk she gives, how many calves she's had, what kind of genetics she has. All of these details, they know upstairs. It's crazy to just spend some time with them in that way. And my dad was a lot that same way. In fact, a lot of people that bought my dad's heifers kind of complained a little bit because you couldn't, you couldn't herd my dad's Holstein heifers. You, all you had to do was just walk out there with a the bucket and they would just follow you, follow you because he spent so much time with them that they were just very comfortable being around him. They were a pain in the rear end when they got out they were hard to put in. Uh, and so that kind of life experience 
uh, kind of coupled with being in church leadership, um, raising three of my own kids is uh, another aspect, I think, that God has used to, to prepare me and really to prepare the church. All these things kind of have some overlapping ideas. And uh, Peter's drawing to a conclusion here with this idea. And he has a few more important points to convey to us in this last chapter. And I think, I think that a lot of 1 Peter 5 is based on John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Peter kind of turns his attention for a moment to the local churches that he's writing to, to communicate perhaps the very words that were communicated to him in John chapter 21. Let's read that part together. John chapter 21 So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said, yes, and he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus' reply was to tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. Do you love me? No doubt a reference to Peter's three denials of Christ just a short time before. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And I wonder when we get to 1 Peter 5, if those words, that admonition, that the 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 intensity of the conversation between Jesus and Peter just kept ringing through his ears all of those years. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Follow me. Isn't it interesting that some of the very last conversation, some of the very last words that that Jesus shared with Peter were actually some of the very first words that he shared with him? Follow me. Just follow me. Take care of my people. Peter's whole life and ministry and his martyrdom was wrapped and summarized in this passage. Follow me. Feed my sheep. It's easy to see the responsibility from uh, Jesus lived out in Peter's life. And Peter took these words of Jesus with all seriousness and with all heavenly authority. Like this was going to be the defining aspect of how he followed his Savior. He was simply going to take care of his people. He was going to do what needed to be done to take care of his people, to glorify Jesus in the process. I often wonder if another passage was on Peter's mind. It has been on mine, and so I'm not uh, drawing any hard and fast conclusions that Peter was thinking about it, but Peter definitely knew, he definitely knew the Old Testament. And I'm curious if this contrast the sobering contrast of leadership that we see in Ezekiel 34 
I wonder if it was on Peter's mind as well. The contrast of leadership you see in Ezekiel 34 is Israel's failure to tend to God's people and God's perfect leadership of his people. Perfect leadership with great promises added then at the end. A quick summary of Ezekiel 34. Maybe I'll just take a few minutes and just read it. Ezekiel 34 says this, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God the sh- <clears throat> to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Whew. Woe to the shepherds who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Verse 3 says, Gets real personal. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, says the Lord God. Surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock, because the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, thus say the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from the, their mouths, <clears throat> that they may no longer be food for them. For thus said the Lord God, indeed, I myself, here's how God treats his people, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and a dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their, <clears throat> and their folds shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains in Israel. I will feed my flocks and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken, strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. The end of the passage, at the end of the chapter, He goes on to say, I will rise up for them, in verse 29, I will rise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of Gentiles anymore. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. Bang! (laughs) Uh, Ezekiel was not holding back anything. This is what God's saying. This is what's happened. 
you haven't done what you're called to do, you're going to be judged for it. But even in all of that, here's how I'm going to treat my people. Here's how I'm going to take care of my people. Here's how I'm going to heal my people. Here's how I'm going to meet their needs. How I'm going to bring rest to them. How I'm going to bring feed to them. Life and vitality. All based upon verse 31. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men and I'm your God. Says the Lord God. In other words, it's all based upon their identity. The fact that they're God's people. And that they draw their identity strictly from Him. And I wonder at times, and I've wondered as I've prepared this message, Peter knowing the word as well as he did, if that passage, if that passage drove the serious tone of his letter and of chapter 5 in 1 Peter, if that idea, there's, there's a real overlap of language here. Peter's use of the uh, view of Gentiles in previous verses talking about not a group of people but of talking about the ungodly Ezekiel does the same his use of the words here in chapter 5 be shepherds of the flock there's all this overlap and I've really wondered if Peter was thinking about it. it's easy to see why Peter takes this clear and solemn stance on the leadership of the local church let's jump into the passage it's not really that long it's only uh, 14 verses Let's go through it a piece at a time, if you will. If you open your Bibles, flip in your, open your Bible app, whatever's your favorite uh, way to go, or Michaela has it up on the screen, all the same. I'm reading from the New King James. 1 Peter 5, verse 1 says, The elders who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Notice a couple things that Peter brings out here. Peter refers to the church leaders in the plural. Peter Peter refers to, and there's like a dozen places, mostly in the book of Acts, where you see churches being addressed, church leaderships being addressed, and it's not in the singular, it's in the plural. That was a guiding principle years ago as we look to restructure our founding documents. We kept seeing this plural statements when it comes to church leadership. So Peter's referring to church leadership here in the plural. He says elders. Elders. Elders is a classic Jewish term. If you wonder where it comes from, Peter actually is going to mix a little bit of both cultures into this passage. This is the part where he's saying it's kind of classically Jewish in a sense. He uses this kind of term that's referred to the men that had a leadership role in the local community. They had a leadership role in the local communities. The Jewish elders were the guys that people went to for help. They were the guys that that, that could be trusted. They were someone that could be, uh, uh, you could seek out biblical advice and counsel. Somebody that uh, helped settle disputes. Somebody that took responsibility for the community's spiritual nurturing. That was the classic role. It's not all-encompassing in my assessments, but that was the classic Uh, summary view of a Jewish elder in the day. And that's why they they met at the city gates. There's a great look, if you think. I always see this in really good um, movies. 
there's always these scenes that come from a Russian city square where there's always these old guys out playing chess. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like in almost every really good, any movie that's worth watching, kind of, other than Westerns, it's really worth, you know, these scenes kind of keep cropping up. And that's the, the picture I have in my mind are these old guys with, with wisdom, with discernment, with uh, uh, knowledge, and then the idea that they're going to then give that out. That that can be something that we can partake of. Uh, Twelve times, as I mentioned earlier, this word elders is used. Uh, Acts, Timothy, Titus, and so on. Uh, we see the leadership of the local church as a group of men. Another thing about this, this uh, verse 1 in chapter 5 is that Peter refers himself as a fellow elder. I who am a fellow elder, although Peter has... Although Peter had the office of an apostle, so Peter had this office of an apostle, and one of the qualifiers for an apostle is you have to see the risen Christ, right? That's how the apostle Paul spent time, saw the risen Christ. Uh, But Peter had that office of an apostle. But he he didn't recognize himself in that way in this context. Not that it wasn't true. It was true, but Peter recognized himself. He self-identified as a fellow elder. His heart and ministry was lived out as one of several church leaders. Doesn't mean that he was an apostle. He was an apostle. And miracles, all of that that went with that, we see in the book of Acts. But his heart, I believe, is really in the leading of people in this way. This kind of dispels the myth, this myth has been around for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, that uh, Peter somehow was the first bishop or the priest of Christianity. Not true. He's saying, I'm an elder. He's identifying that way. He's not putting himself up above. He's not putting himself in any other position as to say, hey, I'm, I'm one of you guys. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He says, hey, uh, I've witnessed, I've seen it. Peter's threading in his own life experience and his future hope. A witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So he's threading in his own life experience and future hope into a letter as a demonstration that he is this, that he's with them, not above them. That's why he writes the way that he does. He has the authority, but at this point in the juncture and in the letter, he's saying, hey, I am one of you guys. I'm one of you fellas. Peter goes on to say in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. The very words of Jesus ringing out in his own writing. Perhaps, even if he thought about Ezekiel 34, He's taking the serious tone here to say, hey, you guys in your local churches, take care of your people. Shepherd them. Lead them. Nurture them. Protect them. Shepherd the flock. It's an agrarian term used as a metaphor and a picture of the relationship between the leaders and the congregation. If there's probably a message that I shouldn't be, I should be down here. I like that that Dennis brings that up. It's this way, is that we're eye to eye. Don't get the wrong impression 
just because of a stage, that there's something more or more important about me or anybody that would preach, that would lead, is that our role, our responsibility is to be among and with. It's a great responsibility that we, uh, that we have to tend to the spiritual and physical needs of the people. Uh, in practical terms, in a little bit of application, it means this. It means that we put your needs ahead of our own. That's what it means to be a shepherd. That we put, as your elders, as your church leadership, Dinkers included, that we put your needs ahead of our own. That means that there's sacrifice involved with what we do. What's best for the body is a question that's often asked and often should be asked. It means that we spend time knowing the folks. That we're aware of the dangers that are lurking, that are a threat to you. Spiritually, maybe physically, maybe in other ways, maybe false doctrine. We have to be aware of these dangers. We have to be aware of, of the, uh, the enemy's play as it is in protecting you guys. That's not something that we just do for you. It's really something as a fellowship that we do across the board for one another. We have responsibility to one another in that way. Elders definitely need to be leading the charge, though. They need to be most aware. Uh, the other thing, this perhaps is a little bit, can be probably construed in a different way, uh, is the encouragement to grow the herd, as it were. To grow the herd. Now, let me say, there's a wide variety of gifts, and I talked about this last week. Wide variety of gifts in the body. There's those of you that are, that are very gifted in, in just spending time with people, hospitality or evangelism probably is the best example. And like, you're always out there reaching, pulling, making connections with people, encouraging them to consider Christ, all of that. It's not our job solely... Here's the, here's the, I'll just get right down to the meat. The last evangelism tool that I would encourage anybody to take on, or tactic, is to just say, come to church so you can hear the gospel. Like that's not, you will not find that in these pages. It's not there. It's not a recruiting tool so they can come and listen to me blather on for 45 minutes and somehow make some connection. You guys encouraging people to consider Christ. That's why I'm encouraging you guys in using your gifts. That's why we're equipping you Sunday nights and Wednesdays and small groups and, and all the opportunities that we possibly can. Take austerity Ephesians for a footnote on that. But ultimately, we have a, 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 a responsibility there as well as leaders. To grow the herd. Another point of application is this. It's knowing the tendencies and inclinations of the people. If you don't spend time with them, you won't know what their tendencies are, what their thoughts are, uh, how they're inclined to behave, how they're inclined to think, um, where they're going in life. We have responsibility to know that. A good shepherd 
A good shepherd knows these things. And Jesus knows them about you. And your elders should know them (laughs) in a general way about you as well. It's a strong call for transparency, spending time together and growing your relationships. Uh, We should know where the good feed and water is located. Of course, right here in front of us. It means that we're tender towards the broken as well. And you see that in Ezekiel 34 comes out really well. And it's going to come out here in 1 Peter chapter 5 as well. That there's an aspect of, of binding up the, that, those that are broken. Taking care of, of uh, the one that is hurt. Being a, we talked about this years ago, being a safe harbor. Our church should be, and our leadership here should be a safe harbor for people that have gotten banged up in life. And they need the opportunity to kind of heal up and to kind of regroup and to uh, kind of be refreshed. There needs to be that aspect when it comes to leadership. Heal the seek, the sick, excuse me, and seek out the lost. Serving as overseers, he says, is a Greco-Roman term. So I talked about the Jewish term of the elder, but serving as overseers is more of a Greco-Roman term that was used to identify somebody in a place of management. That's kind of the, the word picture that... So, so Peter gives us the two looks, one from the kind of the Jewish culture, one from the social culture, into what it means. Both of them definitely applied. And he goes on to use these terms, that you should serve not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Uh, God's looking for those who would desire to serve but he's not forcing anybody. So he wants to know, God wants to know, in fact, God's requirement for you to serve is to serve willingly. Not because somebody's twisting your arm, not because they're putting on some kind of pressure. The last reason that anybody should, and I don't think this church, we've probably been there <laughs> at times, uh, oh man, we're shorthanded, uh, so we get a little, start to give a little twist, a little twist. Yeah, we're shorthanded. Who's God raising up? Who's God putting a desire in their heart to serve? We have to be very careful that it's a, that's what's leading somebody into ministry, not somebody being an arm twisted. And I've seen this happen in a great way. I've seen this happen in a great way right here, where through a course of life events and Messages from the pulpit and whatnot, you know, people rise up and say, man, I just feel like God's really challenging me to step up. And I think that's awesome. That's that not forced, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. God's looking for those who are eager to serve, to see the church grow. Eager to serve in the church, not someone that's in it for the money. Not somebody that's trying to build a career first and then the ministry comes in underneath that's not God's plan not for dishonest gain he says if a pastor's prime motivation to minister is money uh, I'll put you on notice it's time to quit right it's not about the money it's never been about the money I can say that Uh, I will tell you up front I get paid just for the messages that I make we made that decision years ago as a whole board. 
uh, to reimburse whoever's speaking, whether it's one of us or a guest speaker or a missionary, to do kind of like an honorarium. I don't do this as a career. I do this because I'm passionate about serving the church. I'm passionate about seeing the church grow. I'm really passionate about seeing the church win for a change rather than getting our teeth kicked in in our culture. If you want to know, really get down to the meat of where I'm at. But if a person's in it, if a person's in it for the, min- for the money and not the ministry, the ministry's down here because they're really gifted speakers. And we, you can go through a Rolodex of people that you see on TV and you think, man, alive. Do a little research and look at the multi-billion dollar homes of some of these guys. And you have to ask yourself, uh, money or ministry? You make the call. God wants people that are in it for the ministry. The money's going to come and go. But God's motivation to see the church grow, to see the church taken care of, that never changes. That's exactly what Peter's addressing here, is the motives to minister. Not by compulsion. Here's your contrast. Classic Jewish writing style. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The only way that we discover motives is time together. The only way that you're going to get to know me is time together. The only way that I'm going to get to know you, the only way that you're going to get to know one another is you look around the room and say, man, I really don't know that person. Let me give you a little relational tip. Go introduce yourself. Try to spend some time together. Get to know people. The only way that we discover that motives are revealed is spending time together, building relationships, being transparent and accountable to one another. Notice the mutual edification that Peter has in mind as he continues on in verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, you can choose how you want to categorize yourself as a younger person. David would probably put himself in that category. Amen? Amen. Here's your verse. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. (laughs) I snuck that in. I knew it was coming. Submit yourselves to your elders, you younger people. Here's here's Peter saying, here's how this is going to apply. Here's how it's going to apply. We're all in it together, right? And these people are charged to lead you, to lead the congregation. Submit yourself to them. That's not a submission that takes God out of the equation. God never speaks of human submission, person to person, in absolute terms. He always reserves the right for himself first, his ways, his word above, is above all that. But submit yourselves, younger people, to your elders. Yes, all of you, not all he's going to say, yet all of you be submissive to one another. There's a connection of transparency and openness and honesty that is equal value amongst the people in the church. And be clothed with humility For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is a a real wiggly, slippery fish. 
It's one of those things that creeps up. Sometimes we don't even know. We don't even know that that's our issue. It's one of those things that comes in and creates doubt amongst the brethren. Ah, is that, ah, what's their, ah. And we're full of suspicion. We're full of distrust. We're full of uncertainty. And a lot of it is not because we don't have knowledge. A lot of time pride comes in because we believe, and we're all susceptible to this across the board, we're all susceptible to the fact that we believe that we have the perfect perspective. That's what pride does. That's the slipperiness of pride. That we have the perfect perspective on all that's going around, and it's way easier to to fix everybody else's problems than it is to deal with my own and be honest about my own. And so I hide that, I push it down, I stuff it into a barrel, tighten the lid, and I go about my day to solve everybody else's issues because I have it all right. That's what pride does. That's why it's so slippery. And that's why Peter's coming against pride with the simple spear of humility. The simple spear of humility. Peter's goal here is to build and strengthen the church. To uh, equip, if you will, if we can borrow a term from Paul, to equip the body. To equip a body that's being, being marginalized by leadership, being uh, persecuted by Roman rule, Trying to get squi- you know, they're trying to keep squishing, trying to keep pressurizing them, pushing them down, trying to put enough pressure that they would fold. But Peter's goal here in the midst of all of that is to build and strengthen the body of Christ. Younger folks, I want you to be, if you want to be a great leader, if you're not in the place of leadership, but this is a tried and true principle. Young people, if you want to be a great leader, and I will tell you up front, I want you to be great leaders. As I mentioned in a sermon here quite a few weeks ago, let's not just uh, raise great kids that they're great while they're kids, parents. Let's raise kids that will be great adults for Christ. And kids, if you want to be a great leader, there's one way to being a great leader, and that's being a great follower. That's the reality of, of where it's at. You look around at people that are great leaders, that are tried and true, that have solid character, that are living according to the Word of God, you look across it, whether it's in this room, or whether it's further in the body of Christ, I'll tell you this. They learn to follow. Following, being a good follower, does not mean that you never question anything. That's, not, that's, that's, the so, that's our social mentality of, that, that we just need people to follow and not question anything. That is not true. And that's not an aspect of being a a great follower. But being a great follower is living humbly. It's asking questions. It's finding out the answers to the questions, why? Why Why is this this way? Why is this that way? How can I do this? It's asking great questions. Okay? Younger folks, if you want to be a great leader, be a great follower. I, I want to go back and correct something that I've mentioned the last several weeks. 
because as I was thinking and praying about for today, uh, I was thinking about this. I've mentioned this word survive, the idea of the church surviving uh, many times lately. Uh, Actually, we're not called to just survive, but to thrive. I think that's what Peter's pointing to here. Knowing that they will uh, have and will need each other, that there's an interdependency um, in the body that God endorses. Did we all get that? That Peter's saying, hey, we're in this together. So there's a connection that can't really be undone. When it is undone, it's painful a lot, and that pain lasts a long time. But there's an interdependency amongst God's people that I believe God really endorses. That's why we're called to have the relationships that are so transparent, that's open and honest, that we can come to one another and say, hey, hey, I'm struggling with this. I'm, I, I, don't know how, I don't know where to turn. I'm not sure how to handle this. I'm struggling with this. And we need relationships like that in the church. Fellas, uh, you need relationships like that in the church. If you don't have those types of relationships, start seeking them out. There's an interdependency, not an enabling. I'm not saying that. Because enabling leads to sin, is saying sinful activity is okay. I'm not saying that. But there's an interdependency I believe that God endorses in the church that's good and healthy and right. And that interdependency is is built upon the foundation of the word that it's objective truth and that there's accountability then amongst the brethren and the sisters in a fellowship. So that if I'm in starting to stray and a brother comes up to me and says, hey, can, can we have a conversation? I'm starting to notice a pattern here. You know, I'm starting to see a pattern in your life. I'm not sure that's healthy. I'm not sure that's good. I want to have a conversation. We're, we're already in agreement that there's objective truth, the Word of God, that resides over our lives together in relationship that's way deeper and way more powerful, and then we submit to that. And if it is true, then I confess it, I repent of that sin, and we move together, confessing, that's where the word says, confess your sins one to another, you'll be healed. We can move together in a healthy, somewhat, you say, interdependent. I need that dependency of accountability. And if you're honest, you will say that that's true for yourself. Because walking through those types of situations brings health and vitality to the body, not just the individual. The other reason we uh, really need to look at the idea of the church thriving, even in the days that we live in, is that uh, these idea of character traits, and we're going to see more of them in the coming weeks, um, these character traits like humility, they're precious to God. They're the essence of who God is. I'm not saying He's not bold, He is bold. I'm not saying he's not powerful. He is powerful. But the way to see the Father is to look at the Son. What Jesus displayed of everything was controlled strength and humility in his character. So humility in amongst the relationships, I believe, is really a precious thing to God, and it's vital to church life. There's a connection for to being humble before God 
and to one another. That's that whole piece where he talked about. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Uh, you either, as, as parents, you either teach your kids humility or they're going to learn it the hard way. That's the, that's the reality. I told my kids, I said, you will either learn to deal with authority in your life in a safe environment of our home and in the context of the church, or you can learn it the tough way in the culture. You make a choice. You can be, train yourselves to incorporate humility into your character here at home, here in the privacy of our own dwelling, in a good and constructive way, you know, or you can break out in silver bracelets. You choose. But the reality is, is that's where life goes. And uh, <clears throat> two of my three kids got... <laughs> I shouldn't pick on my kids. I always do that. I don't know why. Two of my three kids listened up really well. The third one... Well, he's doing pretty good. I can't complain. <laughs> I was going to leave you hanging. No, Robbie's got it. He's... There's a dynamic that we feel like we lose the um, intensity of the tiger with our boys in teaching them humility. Like somehow it's less than or uh, somehow, you know, it's not. There's a, uh, there is a, a, I believe, a solid balance there where you can have humility and still be a warrior. Still be a battler. And that humility comes under control in the moments of pride. And the warrior aspect comes under control when there's times where there's a soft touch is needed. Where there's a gentleness that's needed. But they don't have to be polar opposite. You don't have to have one. Uh, one doesn't have to be missing to have the other or vice versa. So there's this connection between being humble before God and before one another, and a connection between that and spiritual victory, which is where Peter's going as he kind of concludes this part. Verse 8, look at it with me. Peter goes on to say, Be sober, be, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion. That's the picture of the enemy of your soul. Right? That's, that's the... Uh, you you. You think you go in your mind to the Discovery Channel and the, uh, you know, the big lion on the Serengeti sneaking through the grass. That's what Peter's talking about. He's saying, your enemy, right? Be careful. Be vigilant. Keep our eyes open. Be sober. Know what's happening around you. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Sober warning for all believers, right? There are people, there is an enemy that's willing to take you out, that wants to take your life, that wants to take all that uh, you've been kind of working on, that wants to take all that you've been putting together, moms and dads, as a family, trying to all that you've been uh, striving for, whatever ministry that you have been involved in, whatever reputation or character that you've built up, 
and, and have been diligently working on in a good way as you follow Christ, hey, Paul, Peter says, heads up. Because it can vanish. You can be gobbled up in a second if you don't know who your enemy is. If you don't know what's in the weeds. So he says, be careful. Keep it in mind. So we follow Jesus, the good shepherd. Uh, We have these things in chapter 5. We have a, a warning. We have a common enemy. We have a steadfast response and a shared experience. He says, resist him steadfast in faith, verse 9, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We have a shared experience with people all around the world that the same enemy that's trying to take them out is the same enemy that's trying to take you out. So this word applies broadly across all of Christianity. There may be specific application for us that's different than other brothers and sisters around the world. I get that. But we have a shared experience. We're not going through it alone, is what Peter's saying. You're not going... One of the biggest tactics of the enemy is division. One of the biggest tactics of the enemy is isolation. You get somebody isolated off in a corner, then it's one-on-one. Right? So be careful. Know that other people are going through the same struggles. Other people have the same pushback in life. There's a shared experience that he talks about in verse 9. Verse 10, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, and strengthen, and settle you. And settle you. God's got a good plan. His good plan should settle us in who he is. His good plan should settle us into relationships with people knowing that that those are good things, that there's something that happens in the dynamic of of being in a fellowship and in relationship people with other people that can't be experienced in any other way. To him be glory and dominion and forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Peter takes these words, last three verses of chapter 5, and last three verses of 1 Peter, onto the, uh, onto the end. By Silvanus, that's who wrote the letter. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Verse 13 has a tendency to be a, a lot of speculation. Uh, I, won't, uh, I won't bluff you. I have a few speculations myself. But verse 13 says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you, <clears throat> peace, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, she who is in Babylon, there's a lot of speculation, like what does that mean? Uh, I don't know that we know definitively. I have a uh, particular guess. Uh, I think that Paul, uh, Peter was writing this from Rome. I think the Babylon reference is a, a uh, Old Testament reference that he's overlaying onto Rome as kind of the center of the known world, full of idolatry and uh, wickedness and all kinds of evil. 
I think the she that he's referring to, these are just my own thoughts, uh, no way to prove them out. I'll be able to prove them out one day, I guess, but I think the she that Peter's referring to is actually his wife. Because uh, historians, church historians tell us that Peter's wife was martyred the day before he was, and that there was communication amongst the two. And I think that Peter's wife was with him kind of hand in glove throughout his years of ministry. And so it would naturally read, in my mind anyway, she who is in Babylon saying, hey, here we are in Rome, elect together with you, greets you, personal greeting to the churches. And so does Mark, my son. He's talking about John Mark here, I believe, the, the author of the Gospel of Mark. And they figure Mark's gospel, as he wrote it down, was a, was a compilation of Peter's thoughts and experiences. And uh, <clears throat> so, take that for what it's worth. And his final, his final encouragement in verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Uh, social constraints set aside. Uh, we need to be affectionate. <laughs> to one another. It's not socially normal to greet one another with a kiss of love in America like it is in parts of Europe and France and wherever. The idea that I think that Peter is conveying here is be tender towards one another. Be welcoming. Be hospitable. Love on one another. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Peter's modern day vernacular would just say, Peace out, if you're a texter. Peter's saying, hey, hey, in this final chapter, 14 verses, he's saying, leaders, leaders, do what God calls you to do. And do it humbly. And do it together, because we're all in it together. Submit to one another. We're all in it together. Right? The minute that any of us get this idea that because we're in a place of leadership, because we're, you know, somehow end up three steps up on a stage or we're up in front of the class, that we're all right and everybody else is all wrong, that's a good time to step down. We're in it together. We're in it together. There needs to be that type of openness and, and accountability and transparency that reflects the fact that God's people are in it together. And take care of one another. And exhort one another. And he leaves with this kind of this trailing thought of, of affection. Peace to all you who are in Jesus Christ. His last wish in this letter, and we're going to transition right into Second Peter on the heels of this for next week. But his last idea is, is let your life be full of peace. In the midst of the chaos, this last statement was quite a contrast to the culture that they lived in. And it's quite a contrast to the culture we live in. There's not a lot of peace in our culture. There's not a lot of settledness in our culture. There's not a lot of trust in our culture. Everybody's got fingers pointing at one another. And you know, you're wrong and you're wrong. And, and it's this way and it's that way. And what it is, is it's not peaceful. Let's be honest about that. In our culture. But in Christ, in Christ, we can keep our eyes on the Lord regardless of how high the waves get and have perfect peace. 
have perfect peace. We don't have to worry about it. He's got that, all that under control. We don't have to stress about it. We're called to live as he lives in us and reflect his goodness. We're called to just live in that and, and, and operate in that and have joy and, and some satisfaction in who God is. And you don't have all of those things if you don't have a peace in your life. And it's the biggest thing. It's the biggest thing that we have to guard. We have to guard for peace in our lives. So whatever voice is out there, whatever system is out there, whatever noise that's in our lives that's not bringing peace, turn it down. Turn it down. Turn this up. Turn this up. The relationships in this room. And sometimes they're not even going to be real peaceful, but we have a responsibility to one another as members of the body to help grow one another. To help shepherd in that way. To be accountable. To, to come and not just... It's not about just being under authority. It's the access to counsel. It's the access to advice. I've said often, hey, go and find somebody that's like 30 years older than you are. Go sit and talk with them. Like young parents, you want to know how to raise your kids? Look around, find somebody that's done it, and then go have dinner with them. Like, we're new to empty nesting. No kids at home. So we want to go visit with, we want to pick brains with people that have been in this mode for quite a while. That's the interaction piece. That's the growing together piece. That's the building community piece. And that's the experiencing peace piece. <laughs> if I can use, spell it differently, back to back in the same sentence. That's the experiencing peace piece that we really need. Worship team, come on up. We'll close with our last song. Just know that the, uh, the front's always open. Uh, if you'd like to come up and pray and be before the Lord, uh, people would love to come and pray with you and for you and uh, build relationship with you in the body.